Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrea Lawrence Simpson about her new book, Just Like Family, How Companion Animals Join the Household. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. I'm excited to talk about your book and our shared love of animals in the family. But before we dive into that, I wonder if you will please tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I am a research assistant professor of sociology at the Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Uh, I I have a multi-species family myself. In fact, I grew up in a multi-species family. It was a little bit different than the multi-species family that I have now, but um, I have two boys, a tween and a teen, uh, and they are both a handful. And uh, my husband and I live north of Dallas, uh, kind of working with them and our three dogs. We have three German short-haired pointers. Two of them are seniors. Uh, and one of them is uh, almost two years old now. So he is 18 himself and is interesting to watch interact with the family. So, um, and, and I mentioned that I grew up in a multi-species family, which is somewhat different. And of, of course, if you've read the book, uh, knowing that I grew up in the 70s would mean that, that my family at that time was different. But my parents uh, bred Scottish Terriers and Chinese Sharpay throughout my childhood. So I had a lot of exposure to uh, just dogs in general, puppies, uh, pregnancies, and caretaking of, of dogs, and so on and so forth. So um, certainly, as with anybody's research, uh, my, my past has informed my present and informs my work. So that's me. And one of the things I love to ask my guests if is if they'll share a bit about their own academic journey with us, how you uh, chose your your field of study, and if you knew early on or, or if something at college pointed you towards it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I had a, kind of a, a, a bumpy academic history. I I finished my undergraduate at University of Houston in, in my major with psychology with a minor in sociology. And at the time... <laughs> This is kind of embarrassing, but I'm happy to share this. At the time, uh, as, as I was finishing up, my, my husband and I got married, and I decided after a long history in theater, so this is, sounds like we're kind of getting off track, but after a long history in theater and graduating with my undergraduate in psychology, we decided that we would move to Los Angeles and I would pursue a career in acting. Needless to say, 
you can see that that was not a successful choice. <laughs> uh, but I, I kind of had this break in my, my academic career because I kind of veered off of that road and went and experienced a life as a professional actress and did that for a couple of years and then wound up uh, realizing that that probably was not the route for me uh, and ultimately decided to go back to to grad school. Uh, I chose to go into sociology instead of psychology because sociology was my minor, not my my major. I chose to go into sociology because I had really enjoyed those classes as an undergraduate. I had enjoyed especially kind of the interfacing between psychology and sociology, which was social psychology. And I liked that I could still kind of think about individual micro level group level interactions that you would do in a psychological context while kind of connecting more macro level social structures and features to that conversation and and do that still with this kind of foundation of psychology as long as I stayed on the micro end of sociology and so ultimately I decided to go into sociology I started my graduate program with the intention of finishing my doctorate at the University of California, Riverside, and um, really enjoyed that. Met some big players in identity theory, especially in sociological social psychology. That was Peter Burke and Jan Stetz, and thought that I'd found my home. And then family happens. (laughs) And so my, my husband's job, uh, decided that they wanted to promote him. And we had a decision to make and, and female academics, I think not just female academics, but female professionals in general are very familiar with that decision. Uh, so we had a decision to make uh, if we would stay in Los Angeles so I could finish out my my doctorate or you know move on. Uh, we had to move to New Mexico for that. So move on to New Mexico and uh, pursue his career. And we, we chose to pursue his career. Um, and actually not New Mexico. I'm sorry. We moved several times for his job. That time we moved to Dallas for his career um, and got to Dallas. So I told you this is like a big kind of <laughs> roller coaster journey to where I finally am now. Uh, got to Dallas um, and we were here for about a year and decided to start having kids. So we had our first son in 2006, and then um, when he was three, we decided to have our second, which is kind of a funny story in and of itself, Uh, just that when we were originally married, I didn't want children at all, and he wanted three. And we just kind of decided together that we would cross that road if we ever came to it. But we stayed that way for 12 years. He wanted three. I didn't really want any. And then eventually I decided, okay, one. So the one was 2006. Um, And then I had the one and still out of grad school, right? But teaching, I was lecturing. So I was adjuncting at the time. Had my first son three years, well, I guess two years passed And I looked at my husband and said, Ooh, I want to do this again. (laughs) So he said, yes, let's do it. So we had our second son in 2009. um, And again, continuing to adjunct, not like completely letting go of it, but not back in school at all. Uh, Had the second son. And then um, a couple of years passed and 
I kind of played with the idea of a third child. And my husband was like, are you crazy? <laughs> no. So we flip-flopped, right? I'm thinking about a third child and he's like, no, 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 no. Um, and, you know, I thought about it and decided I really wanted to go back. I was tired of adjuncting, tired of, um, and, and if you've ever kind of had your master's and adjuncted and stepped out of grad school for a while, but still had the dream of becoming a professor, uh, you might be empathetic to this. I was tired of feeling like I was um, an imposter which we still deal with, even with our doctorates, right? We still feel deal with imposter syndrome, but you really, 100%. yeah, but you really deal with it if you don't have that handy little doctor piece, that title in front of your name. And so uh, I went back, I went back to school uh, for my doctorate. Um, initially, I had thought about going to, to UT Austin, uh, but UT Austin was three hours away. Uh, and I had uh, a kiddo at that point that was my youngest one was two. Uh, and I didn't see the utility in spending three hours of commuting on a train three days a week to go to class uh, and, and then come back to, to my kid. I just thought that that was going to be uh, really, really difficult on my family and on me emotionally. Grad school is <laughs> emotionally draining as it is. I didn't need to be throwing in three hours both ways, possibly staying overnight, you know, with a two-year-old at home. Uh, and against better advice, at least they would have said so. My mentors at the time said, you're a fool if you don't go to UT Austin. And I said, well, I guess I'm a fool. I'm going to go to Texas Women's University. UT Austin has a much better reputation in sociology than, than Texas Women's. They're ranked. Texas Women's is not ranked. Um, and, and obviously UT Austin is, is highly ranked. I think they're probably in the top 20 universities for uh, sociology programs. But I, I decided to just salvage my mental health beforehand and stay local. So finished my doctorate and uh, did that in about three and a half years, finished out uh, in December of 2016, uh, and then graduated and went on the job market. And so ultimately wound up with a position at Southern Methodist University, which is where I still am today. Uh, I started out as a, a visiting lecturer then became a renewable lecturer, a full-time renewable lecturer. And then just this year, uh, I've become a research assistant professor. That is At my the, journey. I love that journey. And I love that you told us. I think people have much more twisty journeys um, than most of us realize. And I think the accepted thing is often to say, I graduated from this school, this school, and this school, and now I have this job. Yeah. And we kind of as listeners or as people in the conversation with you think, oh, wow, you know, she just had this very linear path. You know, it was mm. just goal, goal, goal. Mm. And but you've had a lot of life goals mm. and balancing them and prioritizing them involved a zigzag rather than a linear um, progression. And one of the questions I have, though, for listeners, because I think a lot particularly of uh, female students will relate to this is, Wondering what happens when you leave one program, you have a gap, and you realize you want to keep going. Um, so at the point that you left Riverside, had you gone as far as the master's? Were you into doctoral work? At what point were you making this uh, decision to leave, and how did you leave it with them? Oh, that, uh, that, was, that was interesting um, and probably 
I try hard not to look back on that decision with regret. Um, and when I do, I remind myself of, of my boys and I, I lose all regret. But the decision at the time or when I left the program at the time, I had finished my master's. I had gotten into the coursework for my doctorate uh, or course requirements. And I had, oh, this is so hard to talk about. I had one quarter of course requirements left before I would have done my comps. So one quarter uh, and then comps and my advisors at the time were just like wide-eyed, astonished that I would choose to just wholesale leave. And they were like, just stay, stay in residence for one more quarter and you can go wherever you want. You can do your comps wherever you want. You can definitely do your dissertation work wherever you want. You got to do your classes in residence and you've only got a quarter left. And I just was like, nope, nope, nope. I, I'm going to move with my husband. I'm dedicated to, <laughs> and I still, I, you know, I still am. I don't want this at all to sound like I am blaming my husband or his job in any way, because I'm not. At the time, I just very, I, I remember distinctly uh, one of my female advisors looking at me and saying, is your husband making you do this? Because she was just astonished, right? You've got one quarter left, just astonished. And uh, looking at her and saying, well, of, of course not. <laughs> no. Uh, in fact, he's kind of looked at me and said, I'm crazy and for doing this, that why would I not just stay in residence for one quarter? Uh, but I had it in my mind. I was younger. See how old would I have been? Oh, do I want to reveal that? I don't know if I want to reveal that. I was younger. Let's just say I was younger and I... Uh, I, I just chose to go on and I actually did hold on to, um, one of my professors had a huge, uh, had a, a, a huge grant working in education and he really tried so hard to keep me on by saying, you know, I'm going to keep you on this grant as a grad student and you can work long distance, which was not something he typically would have done. You can work long distance. I'll just need you to fly in maybe once a semester or maybe once a quarter or not semester, once a quarter uh, for meetings. And the rest of the, the rest of the time you can work long distance. Uh, and I even let that go. So it, it is a, it is a looking back on it and looking at my reasoning now, you know, hindsight is 2020. Uh, it's it's something that I regret. I was very, very close. But it is also one of the reasons that I was able to finish out my doctorate. When I finally went back, I was able to finish it out in three and a half years. So, And had you main, maintained any relationships with the mentors? You said you talked to your mentors about choosing a new school, and then you didn't choose the one that they said. Were these the same mentors you had had at Riverside? Had you continued to stay in touch? Did you need to renew that conversation? How did that come about? I stayed in touch with one, uh, and that was that that was the professor that was working in sociology of education. I stayed in touch with him uh, and kind of really worked for a year or two leading up to finally going back with him in terms of just you know smart steps, where I should go. Maybe you know one of the conversations he and I had was maybe you could if you're going to commute to Austin, um, why don't you just get on a flight? Cause it would be a similar amount of time and fly back here. Why don't you come out come out here and finish it up? So we had that conversation. 
Um, but he was the one that I stayed in touch with. And then uh, the other person that I'm referring to as a mentor had been with me kind of through my adjunct journey to, uh, okay, so I'm going to back up to sociology professors here in Dallas, one at UT Dallas, uh, where I had adjuncted, and then one at UT Arlington, where I was presently adjuncting. Both of them were extremely supportive in getting me back into a doctoral program. And so uh, really, they were the two really pushing me to go to UT Austin. Uh, But I couldn't, I just couldn't see balancing that, right? That work-family balance. I couldn't, even going out, obviously going back out to UCR, I couldn't see balancing that with two young kids. I am, um, you know, each family does things in their own way. And I find myself very dedicated to my career and to my profession, uh, but very dedicated to my children as well. And so I'm constantly walking a fairly stressful tightrope between the two of them. And that was probably one of my first experiences dealing with that tightrope was feeling like I want to be a super mom to these kids, but I also want to be a super academic. So how am I going to make that happen? And and that is, that's, that was what I did. I'm going to make it happen by staying locally, going to TWU, even with my advisors all kind of saying, no, don't do it. It will be the death to your career. Um, yeah. So I don't know if it was the death to my career, but you know, it periodically puts up obstacles because I'm not coming from a highly ranked department. So yes. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that story. And if it helps when you look back in hindsight, it's incredibly, uh, I don't want to say common, uh, but I hear those a similar type story from many women. Um, they reach a crossroad where their academic journey is in one place and either um, their partner is in a different place or there's a family concern of, a, of another family member that they have responsibilities towards, mm-hmm. um, or they've reached information based on private conversations with their doctors, um, that family planning is something they need to handle imminently. Absolutely. And so there can be a number, and those are just three examples out of a buffet of reasons. There can be health reasons, all kinds of reasons why. I've heard from female academics that there's a pause in their career, but they're seldom comfortable talking about it. I think that vulnerability is still uncomfortable for us, even though that vulnerability shows a tremendous strength. You were identifying, even if you can articulate it to the satisfaction of your mentors, look, I need to do this. It doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense out loud, but this is what I need to do. And somewhere in continuing to gut check along the way, you were able to say, well, I, I've got to adjunct. I have to I have to keep in the game. Now I have to go back to school. No, I can't have these commutes. So I have to go to this school. Now I'm ready to full-time do my career. You kept gut checking and kept moving your course where you could to meet all of these competing goals. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, um, I think that most women that choose to pursue this career, as you've said, at some point have to deal with decisions like that um, in ways that maybe their husbands uh, don't, um, or maybe they're not as, um, I don't know, as as strained by. And uh, I think that ultimately trying to stay true 
and it isn't always easy, but trying to stay true to what to what your goals are. It's, it's especially not easy if they're like competing and they're equally competing with each other. And then you've got the whole maternal guilt thing as well, which I think maybe dads may not have as much of um, driving you as well. So as you're building, building, building this career and uh, kind of reputation in your field, um, your kids are weighing on you. In, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just their development, their love, their their peers, their educate, everything is just constantly weighing on you, constantly sitting on your shoulders uh, in a way that you feel personally, even if you've got a super like um, helpful partner and a great egalitarian relationship, it still just weighs on your shoulders in ways that I don't think it probably does on his. Um, and, and that's tough right? It's tough. It's tough to make sure that you don't lose sight of what your goals are uh, while you're, while you're navigating that. Um, And ultimately, yeah, ultimately though, that guilt is always there. And I will give you one little example because I don't, I don't want to dominate the whole thing, but one little example from my own uh, experience, very recent experience. I, I got obviously some advanced copies of this book, They came to the house a day or two before the release date. And I saved, both of my boys were so excited about this, right? Oh, mom's an author and she's going to have a book and just very excited about it and very impressed. And they continue to be impressed. My oldest son, you know, tells me probably once every other day how proud he is of me for being an author. And so there's that huge payoff there with that balancing piece, right? But um, the, the day that it was released, when they came down for breakfast, it was July 13th. I laid the book in the middle of the table because I was so excited and I knew they would be too. And my youngest jumped up and down and was like, oh my gosh, mom's an author. He was so excited. And my older son was a little more tempered in, in his response. He said, that is really cool. I He picked the book up and you know he could feel it and he was flipping through the pages and um, I pointed out kind of the dedication because he was in that and the acknowledgments and things like that. I pointed it out to both of them. But once they were both over that excitement, uh, my oldest son looked at me square in the eyes and he said, great. So now that the book's out, does this mean you're going to spend more time with us? And as if that wasn't enough, right? That And he didn't mean that in a bad way, but as if that wasn't enough of a guilt induction for me, um, that very morning I had been looking for grants to start a new project. And so I just doubled over with guilt when he said that to me. So um, <laughs> I don't know, that might be too much, but uh, it's, it's definitely an ongoing struggle uh, and one where you've got to be, I think, very dedicated to your career to be able to at least for me to be able to to withstand it and constantly be looking for ways to balance it and make yourself feel like you're doing the best that you can and you're being a good mom and you're doing a great job developing your career at the same time. And it sounds like also taking the long road. Yes. You know, your your goals have all been coming along the path, but by making a longer path to, to reach all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads to my next question, which is what inspired this particular book? A return to my doctoral program. <laughs> That's what inspired this particular book. Um, and, you know, that that early inspiration, I didn't realize that I would eventually turn it into a book. But um, 
as I mentioned earlier, my husband and I were child-free for 12 years, and we um, spent that time, I should say human child-free for 12 years. We spent that time um, as, as a married couple, but with our with our fur baby, with Chew Bear. And um, Chew Bear was um, a chow chow, and I had gotten her as an undergraduate um, in desperate need of some companionship. <laughs> Uh, I, I had gotten her and brought her into my life before I met my husband. And uh, we became very, very, very close. And she fairly rapidly became like a child to me, uh, even before I met my husband. And then uh, once he and I met and began dating, um, I think that he saw how wrapped up I was in her. And he became pretty wrapped up in her as well. Uh, and as we got married and began interacting with that kind of new relationship, uh, she just melded right on in as not only a member of our family, but as as our child. And if you'd asked either one of us at the time, uh, hey, <laughs> you, you know, you're you're treating that dog like a, a human baby, right? I mean, you you rock her and you uh, buy special gifts for her and you travel everywhere with her and you take her into consideration for uh, you know the tr- kinds of trips that you'll take and the kinds of places that you're living and so on and so forth. Uh, we would have said, well, of course we do, but that doesn't mean we think of her like a child. Uh, that wasn't until that realization and the motivation for this uh, work anyway, the initial pieces of the work didn't come until she was 10 years old and diagnosed with lymphoma. And, and of course, I talk about that in the introduction uh, to the book, kind of as being an impetus for this research. But uh, that experience of being told that we were losing uh, Chewbacca, um, initially we were told we only had 30 days left with her, uh, which was gut-wrenching. And like, you know, I, I have my human children now, but at the time it felt like I was losing a human child. I was being told that my child would be gone in 30 days. And the experience of navigating different kinds of specialists uh, and then talking to them always, almost always with her in the room really just, you know, the realization that the ways in which I was talking about treatments and talking about options in front of her, uh, was like I would I would be behaving in front of a, a human child um, helped me to begin thinking about why that was, uh, how that could have possibly come to fruition. Was I the only person? I couldn't possibly be the only person behaving like this. I mean, my husband was behaving like this, uh, but we couldn't be the only two people. The relationship with her was much, much different from the relationship that we had in my family of orientation. Uh, my family, uh, my childhood family, it was much different. Just, um, bonding with her like that and having her literally be a part of probably every minute of our lives. Um, and so I think that, that really she was, she was 50% of the driving motivation and those questions were part of that motivation. And then the return to, to grad school and looking through the literature and realizing, especially in sociology, so few people had addressed this in any way whatsoever, uh, was, the other 50%. Like somebody has to do work on this and I think it's going to be me. And remember earlier I was talking about uh, probably starting two years out from when I actually got back into grad school with my my mentor from UCR, trying to navigate my way through 
that's a horrible topic. You can't do that topic. Not in sociology, <laughs> human animal interactions in sociology. You are not going to be able to make this happen. Um, but I was bound and determined to make it happen. And, you know, at TWU, I will say this about my program at TWU, that that topic was welcomed with open arms. They were excited about it, interested in it, wanted to, uh, you know, kind of support me in that endeavor. And um, in many ways, being in a lesser known department, I think, is what made them able to support me in that way. Um, and so with mentors there. Uh, as I got started in that program, who understood what my goal was and what my intentions were with with that dissertation, I was really able to um, kind of dig in and start thinking about designs and methodological designs and the ways in which I would move past just kind of sort of an auto-ethnographic approach to my own experiences. So for listeners who may not have been able to get a copy of the book yet, can you give them the elevator pitch? What's the synopsis if you had to describe this for them? The elevator pitch for my book would be uh, that our cultural definitions of family have been rapidly changing since the 1970s. And the vast majority of family work in sociology is about still about traditional families, that is the nuclear family, and to some degree, non-traditional families. This book is about the non-traditional family piece, the evolution since the 1970s of changes in the family structure and family households that would eventually include what I'm talking about, which is the multi-species family. And I'll just add one more sentence to that. And within the evolution of the multi-species family, the kinds of familial identities typically associated with other humans that have become integrated with our dogs and cats in the United States. And you give a wonderful example uh, early on in the book about that. Um, You're with, I don't know if she's yet your mother-in-law or she's soon to be your Mm mother-in-law. And you have Chewbacca, Chewbear. your either boyfriend or new husband, and you're having this interaction at the dinner table. Um, all of you, can you can you share that story? Uh, yes, and that story happened over and over again. <laughs> it's kind of a conglomeration of so many experiences with FAMU. So we were married. We were newly married at the time, and my husband's mother is uh, is Finnish, and so. In Finnish, uh, they they don't just say grandmother, right, or mother. Um, For grandmother, they would say famor, or famu would be kind of the familiar, um, like grandma famu. And so Shubair, being our our kind of child as she was, Famu completely bought into that as as a grandmother, right? As a, a grandmother to her grand dog. And at the dinner table, we we would sit when we go over. We always took Chubair with us, and Famu would have, uh, you know, a special little plate prepared for her, full of human food, which we didn't often approve of. Uh, as Chubair's pet parents, we didn't approve of giving her a lot of greasy kind of um, gourmet. Uh, Famu is a gourmet gourmet cook, gourmet prepared foods. Uh, but she always had a special little plate and would give Chew Bear nibbles and niblets off of it throughout the meal. And um, 
she would just look at me and speak in Chew Bear's voice. Look, mommy, I just, I love, love, love this. I want to have another piece, please, mommy. Uh, And I would look at Famu square in the eyes and tell her, absolutely not. She can't have any more. She's going to become ill or uh, spoiled. (laughs) You're going to spoil her and she will not eat for us properly at home. Um, And so I think that that particular story really uh, replicates the relationship that extended beyond my husband and myself. Uh, and, and I talk about that in one of the chapters in the book to extended family, uh, to, to FAMU, where you know, she was perfectly willing to accept us as a child-free family and very happy to take Chew Bear in as her grand dog. And she would have pictures of her and share pictures with her friends of Chew Bear. She had pictures up on uh, the refrigerator of Chew Bear and us when we would go on trips. Um, She traveled with us when we moved to Los Angeles. She actually traveled with us with the intention of helping us take care of Chew Bear while we looked for places to live that would be suitable for the three of us. Um, and so I think that that's a really nice example from, from my own experience is a really nice example of how this idea of a multi-species family is not just isolated to, uh, you know, the, the family of procreation or the, the nuclear family or single parent family, if you will, um, it very much so is expanding out to extended family networks, and it is introducing, in many cases, the kinds of familial identities that would not be present otherwise if human children were were not in the picture. And as you said a few minutes ago, you were getting the sense this wasn't just unique to, to you all, that if your family was acting this way, other families were probably acting this way as well. But to write a book and have research to prove it, you had to go out and find more families like yours or, uh, and do your, your field study work. And one of the things that's really fascinating in your book is in the appendices, you really lay out exactly how you put together this study and what it entailed. And I wonder if for listeners, you could talk about how you designed the field work of this and, and, Walk us through that process a bit, because it's really fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. Um, You know, sometimes when you write about the methods section, it's almost a... You worry that that's going to be the section, like in a journal article or in your book or whatever, that people are going to go, oh, the methods section, moving on. Right, you worry that nobody's going to read that section, and so um, I, I am really appreciative that people uh, and that you read it and thought about it and saw. I, I did put a lot of work into trying to explain how I did it, how I developed it, uh, and the reasons for why I developed each leg of it. It, it really wound up being a, a four-phased project that took place across about four years, four and a half years or so, um, and kind of traversed across my doctoral years and my dissertation into my uh, career as a junior faculty member. And, you know, but it wasn't planned that way. It was a work in progress. It started out, uh, again, for my dissertation. Um, I was still kind of feeling around in the dark about how I could go about I guess, elucidating a really um, a nuanced relationship that could very easily uh, be described by naysayers, if you will, as 
all in my imagination. Right? This, is, this is all perceptual and not something that would be, uh, you know, in sociology, not something that really be, would be a legitimate sociological topic. And so the initial project that I designed for my dissertation was really um, driven by the idea of language brokering, uh, where you have children, um, immigrant children that have moved with their families to a new country and their parents don't speak the native language, but they do by virtue of the fact that they are in school and they're learning the native language, learning English in that new country, uh, for example, they are able to language broker for their parents. Their parents don't have the, the new language, but their parents have things like bills and so on and so forth, healthcare, things that have to be taken care of. And so those kids step in and they translate uh, and very much so are forced to kind of become adults. But that was, that was uh, kind of the impetus for this original, this initial stage was finding a context that I could uh, go in and thinking of how people represent their animals' needs, their healthcare needs, uh, their wants and desires in terms of uh, kind of interaction and love and toys and so on and so forth, how I could somehow show that happening in a way that sociology would go, oh, well, that is very sociological, right? Because this is this was another main motivation for me was really trying to get the discipline uh, to to understand right to see that this is this is not something that should be excluded from our area, and so ultimately what I decided I would do is find a veterinary clinic uh, locally uh, that would be willing to allow me to engage in some participant observation hours with them. Uh, and that I would gather data through observations and memoing and very informal, really informal interviewing with people while they were in the clinics about their relationships with their animals. Uh, but also watching those interactions between people and their animals and between people and their vets and the vet techs in terms of kind of language brokering, if you will, translating over all of the different feelings and intentions um, and needs and emotions that their animals were experiencing for the veterinary staff. And it wound up being, it wound up being perfect because that's exactly what I wanted was to be able to have people just say, you know, my, um, my, my puppy dog is not feeling well today. And I can tell that because she isn't lifting her head up off the ground the way she normally does. She's not as perky as she is when I walk in the room. Um, when I offer food or when I pick up a toy, she has zero interest. And these are just things that I know don't, don't add up. And no, I can't say to you that she's throwing up or that she's drinking too much water or she's limping, um, but I can tell that there's something going on with her. And inevitably, and, and this is what I thought was a really nice outcome, was that there was something going on, right? They had translated it properly for the, veteran, for the veterinarian. And the veterinarian was able to go in and run blood tests and um, feel their abdomens or run, do x-rays or whatever needed to be done in order to, to figure out what was going on. And almost always they were absolutely right. And I just thought, this is so, this is so fantastic. Um, they are these these kind of pet parents are being able to come in and um, advocate for 
for their dogs and cats uh, in a way that really you would see a parent doing for their infant or their toddler, you know, kids that maybe are too young to verbalize properly that something's wrong, but there's clearly something wrong. Um, And so from there, I started thinking, and it happened pretty quickly, I I really started realizing um, empirical evidence all around me that indeed, I was not alone. My husband and I were not alone, that there were tons of families coming through the clinic that I ultimately wound up doing my participant observation in that were behaving as if their animals were uh, more than animals. They were more than pets. They were really more than family members. They were like children or, and I think it probably, and I, I talk about this in the book, it really kind of depended as well on family structure. Uh, but that was something that I realized later on because people that were coming in with their young children, their young human children were interacting a little bit differently with their dogs and cats, still very much so, um, lovingly towards them, but probably not, probably not behaving as a parent would towards a doll, a, a child, but the kids that I saw interacting with those dogs and cats in that particular context seem to be doing it as if they were behaving towards a sibling rather than a pet, right? Or rather than just some kind of generalized family member, they, they were acting as if their dogs and cats were, were pets. And so from those observations, I started thinking about my own experiences and these different people that I was seeing, I was seeing in the clinic and decided that I would start recruiting for in-depth interviews. So I went back to my IRB and pitched another project, which they probably, I know my, my, uh, my advisor at the time probably thought I was crazy because I just started a project a couple of months earlier with the intention of making that my, uh, my dissertation project. But then I went back, I developed another IRB proposal with in-depth interviews uh, and more focused on thinking about thinking about dogs and cats as family members with human familial identities, got that passed and then started recruiting in the vet clinic, but also recruiting on my, on my campus through the message boards uh, and doing some snowball recruiting as well from people that were, uh, that had already agreed to participate in it. Um, And so I developed that as a second stage. uh, And I wound up doing my, a dissertation or finishing out my dissertation with about, I think probably 23 interviews. I graduated and realized that I probably really wanted to turn this into a book, but I also knew I didn't have enough to turn it into a book. And so I spent that summer after I graduated collecting some more in-depth interviews and then um, began pitching. I'm trying to remember the exact order I did this in. I, I guess I, ha- I, di- I didn't start pitching it yet. I guess I started realizing, because I was using identity perspective, identity theory, I began realizing I couldn't just talk about this at the micro level. I was going to have to talk about it in terms of how these group level interactions were connecting up to more macro level structures uh, like kinship um, and culture and things like that in order to be able to support the argument in the book. And so I designed a, a context analysis project. And then I think, I think after I got that designed is when I started pitching the book. So that was my third stage. Uh, and the design of that stage was pre-pitching of the book. 
I started pitching the, the book and started kind of simultaneously working on context analysis of advertisements uh, that would demonstrate that particular relationship within the family. Uh, got the book contract with fabulous New York University Press and Eileen Kalish, who is this, she's really an incredible editor, really good uh, in terms of development, also really good at being very blunt. <laughs> telling you when you've got to change things, patient, but blunt, right? Fantastic. It's what I needed. She was, she's great. And so I did that and then realized that I wanted to start a new project because again, this has just kind of been an evolution, a project of evolution, right? Um, The context analysis and the proposal itself in my mind, I started thinking about the life course and how these things, how these relationships have changed, right? So it's not just about family structures and household structures. It's also about life course and stages of the life, the family life course. And so I realized I'd really been looking at uh, people without human children, whether it was because they were child-free or or they were involuntarily childless. And then I've been looking as well at people who had human children. So this would be, you know, in, in family development theory, it would be the second stage of the, of the adult uh, family life course or um, family of of procreation. And it just occurred to me, I should start a new project. (laughs) I should start a new project and interview empty nesters. So I can just kind of see, you know, gather data and have the framework in place to continue gathering data on this, this kind of life course transition and the ways in which dogs and cats within the the family in the United States are uh, evolve along with us in our familial life courses. And so the book, right, the method section kind of dives, it does a deep dive into how each one of those stages were, were built and how I came to the idea that I should do another stage. It very much so was not planned out from the beginning. I probably should have said that at the start of this whole thing. But um, here at the end of my talking about the methods, it, it, it was a, a work in progress. And frankly, I haven't stopped working on it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm continuing on at the Nestor interviewing uh, and am <laughs> starting a new project right now, uh, looking at the impacts of uh, the companion animal on family structures and household structures and relationships in the midst of the pandemic. So, so that, yeah. So that leads to my next question, which is in the, um, in the methods, you talk about being in the vet clinics and you talk about the difficulty in getting access in the first place that while sociology was giving you some pushback about, are, are these really within the bonds of family studies at, veterinarians were giving you pushback and saying, well, these are medically protected uh, appointments. These We have uh, ethics and rules just like human doctors do, and we can't just let you um, come in here. We don't even know you. And the clinic managers wouldn't return your calls and you were, you were getting nowhere. And then when you were talking to your own family vet about wanting to do this, that's when they got on board um, because of your pre-existing relationships and um, and probably because they trusted how you treated your own pets. They had a sense of how you were going to treat other pet owners. You weren't um, this stranger calling saying, can I come stare at your clients? Um, but can, and then another really interesting part of your research was, as you mentioned a moment ago, about the advertisements about products aimed at pet parents and 
really tapping into that, that culture of people feeling that they are pet parents. So of course they want pet insurance and of course they want shoes for their pet. And of course they want, um, you know, birthday party hats for their pet and all of these things that get advertised. Those advertisements didn't require a face-to-face interaction beyond a very interesting experience you had in going to the librarian and saying, why aren't there any ads? I'm looking in the computer and nothing comes up. And she had to, um, shout out to all the reference librarians out there who help us do what we do. She had to give you the keywords for the search, but can you talk about the importance of that face-to-face interactions in those pet clinics that can't be reproduced through sitting in the library or pulling up archival data? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, it was, so if, if you are, having trouble recruiting or finding uh, a location for recruitment or just a a location to do field work, Uh, it can be very frustrating. And that was a a really frustrating part. I had this great idea. Um, I was just, this was really my first real project that I was working on all by myself. uh, And I just kept getting doors shut in my face. And I, I, of course, I could have started out with my own personal vet. uh, But at the time, I chose not to. I kind of thought it would be a conflict of interest somehow that maybe it would be an imposition on his clinic uh, or he might look ill on me. I, I don't know. I just I felt like maybe ethically uh, and methodologically I should try to find a place that I was not personally connected to. Um, and so, yeah, I went through a lot of closed doors and refusals to even let me talk to a clinic manager uh, before I ultimately wound up just kind of informally sharing with my clinic, with my veterinarian about what I was up to and what I was hoping to do. Uh, and so sometimes like the answer to those, those kinds of field work questions is just, it's right in your backyard. And you may have, <laughs> you may have completely just shut it off as an option and not realized how much time you're wasting because you decided for them uh, before you gave them the chance to decide, right, whether or not they would allow you to be, um, or whether or not they would allow that relationship to develop into uh, something that maybe is a little more professional and academic uh, beyond just, in this case, um, veterinarian and client. Uh, but really, I I think that, you know, ultimately the result of that was being able to get into that clinic and just I had access. He gave me access to the whole clinic. The only thing I didn't have access to for very good reason was euthanasia appointments. Um, I was allowed to sit out front. I could sit in on appointments. Um, Obviously, in order to stay in the appointments, I had to have an informed consent signed by the client. Um, He and I and the clinic manager kind of worked through very nicely how to get get that done in a way that would not disrupt his practice and his flow while at the same time would allow me to kind of build some rapport with clients. Uh, it just really, once, once I found that he was willing to do this, it flowed along so very nicely and uh, was an experience being able to speak to people, um, even if it was just informally, because at that point I was not doing in-depth interviews. It's just kind of informal talk, just uh, asking them, um, questions about 
uh, you know, how they got their dogs or, uh, or the, you know, why, why they adopted three cats at the same time or just little things like that, that I never would have written into an interview guide, right? Just uh, little things that built so much of the foundation for me about what, A, I would eventually put into those uh, semi-structured interview guides, but B, even when I was looking for in images, once I got, got to the context analysis piece of this, that I wouldn't have gotten had I just started with a semi-structured interview format. I wouldn't have gotten that because you know, semi-structured uh, interviews are about, you know, certainly you can flex and change and add probes and things like that as you go, but they're still structured. Uh, being able to be in that kind of very informal setting uh, where people were just willing to kind of chat with me, this wasn't inconvenient for them because they were already there. Uh, and the clinic oftentimes had long wait times. So being able to talk to somebody sitting in the, the um, exam room was convenient and nice for them and helped the, the time pass, gave me so many nuances and so many ideas uh, that I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have gotten sitting, even, you know, sitting doing Zoom uh, interviews now, right? I think that there's probably a lot of that that's going on now. Uh, and those are easy. We don't have to leave our homes. We don't have to set up beyond the scheduling. We don't have to set up places to meet whom we're interacting with. But I think that we are missing out on so much uh, in terms of uh, body language and nuances with, in my case, with um, with those non-human animals, with dogs and cats uh, in their environment, with their family members, uh, that we just, we can't get across Zoom. Um, we can't get across diving into archives. I think there's a lot of value in that. I think there's lots of value in archival research, um, especially in the area that that I'm researching right now. Um, there's been some pretty good work done in terms of pet products, historic the historical development of pet products in the U.S. that took deep dives into archives. Uh, but if you're trying to kind of move beyond the historical, and my book definitely addresses the historical and demographic patterns and things like that. But if you're trying to move into a very kind of personal realm, a nuanced realm, being there with people, being out in the field and just feeling the vibes, seeing nuances that you can't really, or they can't put words to. And you can't really, you, it takes you a while to sit and think and analyze about what the nuances are uh, for a woman who, and I, I think I talk, I know I talk about her in the book, but a woman who comes in and just decides to share with you that she's getting a divorce and she's she was you know, abused physically abused by her husband whom she's divorcing now and the struggle that they're having over their dog. I just don't know that I wouldn't have known to ask that question. Certainly wouldn't have known to ask it over zoom. Um, and I don't know that she would have shared that with me over zoom. I, it just came out of left field. It was such a emotional, impactful moment, uh, for me. And I think for her too, uh, and the way that she parted that, that visit was just as, it was just as fast to cut off the communication, right? It was just like something she wanted to spit out right then and there and share with me and then be done with it and go on about her life. Um, and being in, in that context, I think, is what enabled her to do that. And knowing that she would never see me again, um, I didn't know her name, right? I mean, I, I, 
I guess I could have gone back through my informed consents, but that would have been a violation of ethics. So certainly I didn't, right? She just felt very comfortable and felt like she could share that. So I don't know. I've probably talked too much on that, but um, I think that there's a lot of value with being out in the field, whether you're doing observations or participant observations or um, even ethnographies, like full-fledged ethnographies that uh, are maybe our recent movement because of the pandemic onto more Zoom platforms, virtual platforms, you know, deep dives into archives um, are not are not going to get for us. And so I think we have to be careful not to abandon those kinds of uh, methods uh, in the midst of what the pandemic is moving us towards in terms of scholarship right now, um, and especially over the past year, year and a half for grad students who may be, you know, trying to work on their dissertation in the midst of a, a very kind of isolating event. So. In the few minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you about another uh, story that's in the book, and it's just in there in a moment, but it was one that was important to me. You're shopping, and you're in the checkout line, and you're trying to rush through like every busy person is, and your son is saying, Mom, I think you should look at this magazine, <laughs> saying, you know, tell me about it in the car. Uh, you're trying to stay on schedule, and you're already behind schedule. At least that was implied in the story. I could just feel it, like she has to go, and um, he he manages to get your attention and he shows you the magazine. Can you, can you talk about that moment? <laughs> that was a fun moment. I, you know, one thing that I really enjoyed. Um, and again, you know, there's, there, we talked about this earlier, walking that tightrope between being a parent and being a, a, a professional. Um, uh, one thing I've really enjoyed is watching them develop. Uh, my boys develop kind of as researchers in their own right. And, that oh, there's one of my multi-species family members barking right now, <laughs> protecting his homestead. Um, that particular moment was um, embarrassing to me as a researcher in front of my children, but but also really heartwarming because he was so persistent and wanted me to look at that magazine. We were I I needed to get out of there. We were headed to piano lessons, and at the time, my husband was traveling constantly, so really you know, he traveled four to five days a week. And so uh, typically pre-pandemic, I was a single parent during the week, uh, developing a career, working full time, raising the boys, administering, blah, blah, blah. I was doing it all. And uh, he, we were in that line. I had to get to piano lessons with them. And he was persistent with me with that magazine. I have a picture of the magazine in, in the book, right. Of the cover of that magazine, but, uh, him just saying, um, mom, you, you really got to look at this and me blowing him off. And honestly, I don't really say this so much in the book, but a big part of my, a big part of my stopping about, about half of it was pet parent when he said that. And the other part of it was, and here we are returning back to earlier in this podcast, mommy guilt. Uh, Andrea, just stop for a second. It's important to him. Turn around and take a look at what he's trying to say to you. And he just said, pet parent, take a look. And, you know, I turned around and looked at it and it was just a gold mine. I, it was not something I had really seen. It was not something I was observing with my sociological eye. I had not been looking at those magazines, but there was my little junior researcher uh, who loves magazines. Both of them love magazines in the checkout line, right? They love looking through those. And there he was with his sociological eye and knowing what I was writing about, pulling up a nice piece of new uh, data and really 
really something that made me start thinking about, uh, as I thought about that context analysis project, started making me thinking, uh, think about what I could use in advertising, magazines, print media uh, that would help me support some of my arguments. So it was a fun, that was a really interesting, fun moment. I remember it very fondly. What do you hope this book sparks? Mm. I hope it sparks a minimum of two things. Sociology as a discipline uh, has been very hesitant to accept human-animal interactionist perspectives as sociological. Uh, The discipline itself, um, or the professional association, I should say, so the American Sociological Association, um, was willing back in, I think, 2001 or 2002, they were eventually convinced to start a section. Uh, so a section in ASA, there's lots of different sections, like a sub-discipline within sociology. So ASA was eventually convinced by um, early human-animal interactionists of the importance for developing uh, an animals and society section. Uh, but the section has struggled. It's continued to struggle against mainstream sociology in terms of Uh, you know, mainstream sociology just saying, we just don't see the point. This is a discipline about human social structures, human interaction, uh, human uh, outcomes. We don't need animals. That's ethology. That's biology. That's anthropology. It's not sociology. Uh, And there have been many of us over the past 20 years that have worked really hard to try and show the the mainstream discipline ways in which it absolutely is sociological. And this book, one of the goals that I hope to accomplish with it is this book using concepts like demographic transition theory is key to family demography. Uh, Using second demographic transition is um, sometimes a controversial theory within family demography, but still very much so a part of their study. Uh, And certainly using it to show the sociology of family, why this would be an important non-traditional family to include in their work to include in thinking about uh, impoverished families and their lack of access to veterinary care and their lack of access to uh, money to spend on food for their pets and how that means that they now have to give up their, uh, they may have to to surrender their animals. And then this creates socio-emotional problems, uh, depression and anxiety for children in those impoverished families, right? Thinking about the multi-species family in that light thinking about it in the light of racial and ethnic relations. Uh, These are important pieces that need to be considered, not just within the sociology of family, but even broader, uh, like thinking about race and ethnicity and critical uh, sociological theory and areas like that. So that would be my first goal, uh, is really getting mainstream sociology to see the point in this, uh, in a work that's very much so like a lot of the other work uh, that they would generate just with dogs and cats as part of it. Uh, and then the other goal would be identity theory. Um, so identity theory is, uh, is a social psychological approach to understanding the ways in which we um, develop the identities that we have. 
And one of the premises is that our identities, human identities, are developed in interaction with other humans. Uh, and Sheldon Stryker, an early uh, stalwart in identity theory, alongside uh, others, Peter Burke, for example, um, have been pretty definitive in focusing on human to human interaction. Um, but my book, I'm hoping really goes a long way towards showing the benefit of moving beyond kind of an anthropocentric approach to identity and the ways in which we develop our identities. Uh, One of the main intentions of it was trying to show identity theorists how it would be possible for a a person to interact with a non-human animal and have the interaction, a two-way interaction, really, because Everyone that I spoke with was in full, everyone, 100% of the people that I spoke with were in full agreement that their dogs and cats interact with them and understand an awful lot about what's going on and what's being said to them. Uh, And so helping or kind of pushing identity theory in the direction of our identities can be developed in tandem with non-human actors as well is is really a main goal for this book on you know getting identity theory to kind of open up to at least open up to the idea uh, that shifting over from human to human interaction is very fruitful shifting over to human non-human interaction is very fruitful especially as we move into uh, you know increasing advancing technological fields like artificial intelligence uh, and other areas that would lend themselves to identity development uh, and and once we can kind of open that up we begin to, to be able to explore a lot of other areas that are germane to identity development, but also germane to things like socio-emotional health uh, and prevalence of anxiety and depression, work-family balance, and all of these other fields that go along with kind of understanding the identities and the identity hierarchies and struggles that we have within that hierarchy as we try to prioritize uh, our internalized identities. So that would be the two big goals that I'm aiming for with the book. I like those goals. I am so glad that you came here today and told us all about the background of writing, just like family, how companion animals join the household. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.